Hello and welcome to the Price of Football podcast, the pod that follows the money behind the beautiful game, although increasingly I'm discovering it's not as beautiful as I hoped it would be, Kieran. Um, the Kieran in question, of course, is Kieran Maguire, the prof, the baron, the governor, the Tyson Fury, he's got all sorts of different <laughs> nicknames, the dog's bollocks, apparently is one of them. Um, that one. He's the Liverpool University football finance expert. Hello, Kieran. Hello, Kevin. Uh, I'm Kevin Day. I'm... I'm over the civilian sidekick bit now, I'm broadcaster and comedian now. Um, it's a Monday, so it's it's your questions. Our pod today is based on your questions. And coming up, chart on athletic, the future, uh, the real living wage, Richard Scudamore's bonus, and many more. So, uh, first question, Kieran. We mentioned this in passing in the last pod, but this is a question from Tom Johnson. Um, he he wants to, your view on the the Oyston demise at Blackpool, which does all seem like a a dream now. The Oysters basically ran that club into the ground uh, until one of the owners, Valerie Belikov, I believe, um, a fellow share owner, took him to court. Tom's question basically is, and I think they're both good questions, is why did the EFL not intervene in those five years of, of disastrous mismanagement? And should financial fair play work both ways? I think that those are really good questions. Um, to give sort of a history for those people not familiar with the full story, um, Blackpool were promoted from the Championship to the Premier League in 2010. They then spent one season in the Premier League. Um, and what they did was that they didn't give anybody a pay rise. They, they paid wages which averaged £6,000 a week in a division where the average was £38,000 a week. So the fact that they, they lasted as long that season, because they still had a, a fair chance towards the end of the season, is, is testament to Ian Holloway's ability to, to build a squad and a sense of togetherness. Um, at the time, um, they, they were effectively under the charge of a guy called Carl Oyston, and he paid eleven million pounds that season, um, in effect, to a company that was controlled by his dad. Mm. Now, his dad was also a director. Um, now, his dad is a guy called Owen Oyston. Some people would call flamboyant. Um, some people would call convicted rapist. Mm. Uh, Owen Oyston. Still satisfied, of course, the EFLs and the Premier League's fit and proper person rule. Which just beggars belief. That could only be worse if they decided he was too flamboyant and that was the only reason they could not. It's just astonishing that 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 man was ever allowed to... Anyway, carry on. Yeah. uh, (laughs) um, So the, the club made... Ninety million pounds from being in the in the in the Premier League for one season, and then it also had in those days you used to get four seasons worth of parachute oh, yeah, payments. Yeah. What Blackpool did was when they were relegated, first of all to the Championship, and secondly to to League One, and eventually ended up in League Two, was they didn't spend money on players, and. Um, you mentioned the, the minority shareholder, uh, Valerie Bellicon. Now, this was a guy who, who'd bought uh, a quarter of the club in, in 2008, and he'd put some money into the club. Uh, it went, then went up to the Premier League, 
But he wasn't allowed any involvement. He wasn't he wasn't allowed to get involved in decision making. He wasn't allowed to uh, suggest at board meetings that they invest more in players and managers and so on. Um, he was effectively sidelined. And he made certain allegations uh, in respect of the, the behaviour of the Oysters. And uh, the club uh, eventually had a legal ruling uh, in, in favour of Mr. Bellicon. He was given £31 million uh, in compensation for that. And, and, it was, uh, and, and the, the phrase used by the judge was that the Oyston family had illegitimately, illeg- illegitimately stripped the club of around about £25 million and they'd funneled that money into other companies owned by the Oyston family. Um, Now, is a club allowed to to pay other companies? Mm. Yes, it does. It also has a legal duty to act on behalf of all shareholders. So as you can see, Mr. Bellicon was not benefiting from this money being given to other parts of the Oyston Empire, which many say were were struggling because he was involved in sort of advertising property and so on. And uh, with with the demise of printed press, uh, we now sort of tend, we use the internet so much. um, I think the view was that some of the the Oyston Empire was not performing as well as it used to. And the Oysters are now out of the club yes yeah so yep. they're in safer hands yes we've we've got a brand new owner yep. a, a, a local person who he wants well you know, he, he's saying all the right things uh the, the fan base has returned because um i, I was involved with uh, some of the fan groups uh, yep. and that one of whom was called the, the tangerine knights group yep. and they instigated a, a campaign called the not a penny more and they effectively boycotted their own club yep, yep. and and for a fan that's that's the toughest decision yeah, that you can make you, yep. you know newcastle fans have become split some want to do the same with regards to mike ashley um we saw a similar uh, approach taken by um manchester united fans as a result of the Glazer takeover but when you've got so many years invested in a football club and your friends are still going on so it it really is I've got nothing but for admiration Mm. for these people uh, and I've had meetings with some of them as well uh, and they said they were practically in tears you know to have to to walk around town on the Saturday when their hearts were still there and listen out for the results was was really tough but they didn't buy the merchandise. They, they they boycotted the catering, and and they even boycotted attendances. So we actually saw crazy situations, such as when, when I think Blackpool were hosting Arsenal in the FA Cup, and and the attendance was poor. Um, because so many fans had decided that they were going to do the ultimate sanction, which was the match was being televised. They wanted the rest of the country to see yeah. just how strongly they felt about the involvement of the Oyston family. Uh, interesting, you mentioned the Newcastle fans there, because we played them a couple of weeks ago, and, and virtually the only thing they sang all the way through was about Mike Ashley. Yes. They, they didn't, it was, we can't, we saying afterwards we couldn't recall any songs about Newcastle. I think it was one Steve Bruce song, the rest of it was... Literally an hour and a half of you fat greedy bastard get out of our club, which is what they feel. Tom's question about FFP working both ways. Um, 
Well, that makes a lot of sense. Um, As well as having a cap in terms of what you invest in terms of players, um, should you also have a collar, i.e. a minimum amount? Now, if you take a look at what happens in American sports, many of their, their franchise sports, the likes of the NFL, they do have a wage cap, but they also say because there's no relegation, if you spend anything less than 85% of the wage cap, you will be fined and that money will go to other clubs in the division to stop a club fortunately getting promoted to the Premier League. For whatever reason, You know, ultimately it's down to the players and you've got to give them credit, but it's to stop the club when it gets to the Premier League and when it receives that first cheque for £100 million, mm. turning around to the squad giving them a patronising tap on the head and saying, well done, lads, by the way, we're not going to recruit anybody. Um, We're not going to give you a pay rise. You know, good luck. You know, we'll we'll give you a win bonus now and then if you win, but we're not going to upgrade the quality of the squad and all of the money effectively is going to be funnelled back to the owners. It's amazing, isn't it, how the most capitalist country in the world can teach us lessons about a level playing field. Um, Jake Elsley is a Charlton fan. I can only apologise, Jake. Somebody has to be. Um, he's after reassurance, basically. So Jake wants to know whether De Châtelet, who's going to be another one who goes down as, in history as a terrible, terrible owner, does he still have any shares in the club? Did he clear the club's debt? How much did the new owners pay and can they afford it? Right, let's let's deal with those questions one by one. Um, I, I went on to Company's house um, and started looking at small print. <laughs> You do realise there's big printing. Do you ever do you ever bother with the big print? No, certainly not. There's headlines. There's, headlines. Those... there's nothing you can learn from the big print, is there? <laughs> no. There's me spelling out the words in the big print, and you're going straight for the small print. Um, so according according to the small print, the the new owners uh, who are called East Street Investments. I don't. Is that something with Bruce Springsteen? Yes, yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah. Could could be could be uh, Bruce Springsteen fans or something. Yeah. Um, the, the do- I'll ask my mate Lost today. If he's the Bruce Springsteen expert, <laughs> right? Um, it says that they own a minimum of seventy five percent, so somewhere between seventy five percent and one hundred percent of the shares. So it could be that they now have full ownership of Charlton. Um, the, the documentation that, get log- that gets lodged at companies' house is always uh, very much sort of based on protocol and procedure, so you never get to see exactly what you want. There will be a document which will come out later this year, um, and rest assured I will be getting my <laughs> magnifying glass out and asking those Columbo-style questions of it. So, so the protocol is that you don't reveal exactly how many shares you have? That's right. When, when the, this, it's called a change of control, and, right. and when one person relinquishes control of a business and another person takes over, you only have to say that you own between 50 50 to 75 uh, okay. or 75 or more. Now, that 75 or more could take us up to 100%. Right. I'm assuming that that's what they've done. But you know, until, until I see the full paperwork, I, I wouldn't like to commit myself. So the bad news for Charlton fans is that could suggest that Du Chatelet still has retained some shares, or is that unlikely? I, I think it's unlikely, because if you only own a, a small fraction of the company, as we saw with, with what happened at Blackpool... You, you really have got very little say in what's taking place, especially if you are a private company such right. as Charlton. So that that deals with um, question number one. Can they um, can they afford it as well? Is that the next? Can they afford it? Because when when Palace was taken over in two thousand and ten, the owners were quite plain about the fact they basically spent all their money on the club, and that we'd have to be patient 
for further investment, which was fine because they told us about that. So do we know how big this company is and whether they can afford this club? Well, um, a lot will depend upon the price. Now, um, according to the London Evening Standard, they seem to think that the owners paid around about £50 million for the club. Without going into too much detail, last summer I was approached to do a valuation of Charlton Athletic. Now, I'm quite happy to say that because the person that asked me to do the valuation subsequently didn't bother to pay me for, for my <laughs> advice. Um, and I valued it at around about twenty-five million. So if they've, but and I was told at the time that was a nervous laugh, by the way, on behalf of the person who didn't pay you. I wasn't laughing at the fact <laughs> you weren't paid. I was laughing at the fact that someone out there should be very scared because I know what you're like when you're riled. <laughs> um, I, I was told at the time that Roland wouldn't accept anything below sixty. So if this figure of fifty million is correct, then it would appear that he's managed to persuade people to pay something which is close to his asking price. Does that leave them with further funds to invest? If you take a look at the Charlton message boards, I think, were they excited that he's gone? Yes, because whoever takes over, they've got one thing in their favour. Their first name's not, not Roland. Roland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is this a case of be careful what you wish for? Only time will tell. Um, I think the new owners certainly have a business plan. Um did they spend money in the January transfer window? That doesn't appear to be the case. So I think that's caused a degree of disappointment right. from, from the Charlton fan base. So I think yeah, they're, they are towards the bottom end of the championship and they were hoping that to, to improve the quality of the squad. So that hasn't materialised. How wealthy are the new owners? Um, we don't know. I mean, initially, I think the fans were excited because there were links to people in Abu Dhabi. So therefore, everybody's first inclination is that if it's from somebody from the Middle East, they're automatically a sheikh and they're yeah. autom- automatically a multimillionaire. That's not the case. Um, so, so there's that issue. Is De Chachelet owned any money? Again, I've looked at the small print on Companies House and what happened in January, and I don't think this is great news, it's not bad news, is that there is a company called Star Pricks NV, that's Pricks with an X. Um, <laughs> I'm still laughing. Um, <laughs> NV, <laughs> which is based in Belgium. Of course. <laughs> and that company has uh, have what we refer to as a charge. Now, a charge is a form of a mortgage agreement. So it looks as if uh, some of de Chachelet's companies still have lent money to Charlton Football Club. Uh, okay. In the last set of accounts, the loans from the football club to the owner, uh, they totaled around £60 million. Now, it could be that he's written off some of that, none of that, or or all of that, um, and has given the further loan. We, we don't know. We don't know whether the loan is interest-bearing, because, again, I've, I've been through the, the document, and, and nothing grabbed me. Admittedly, I, I was listening to the Tyson Fury type <laughs> at the time I was I was going through Living the, the dream, yeah. Um, I, I think from what we know of Duchatelet, he won't have written off all the debt. Uh, we, we need to get through this, uh, quite a few questions yet, so we might have to answer these in less detail, I'm afraid. Okay, Kieran, sure. Which is... Uh, yeah. It's to your credit that you give us the full story, but sometimes just just the, just the headlines will do. Okay. I know you don't like the headlines. Um, Andrew Davidson, and I think we could probably answer this question in one word. Andrew Davidson asked a very, should all Premier League clubs be signing up to paying staff the real living wage? Yes. Yes, essentially. Um, are they doing so? 
Um, no, uh, my understanding presently, Liverpool, Everton, Chelsea, West Ham, Palace and Brighton are all signed up with the Living Wage Foundation to pay the living wage, which I think is, is it £10.55 yeah. an hour? Well, it's slightly different in London. It's the London living wage, isn't it, which is slightly higher, I think, right. than the rest of the nation. Um, so, so that gives us the position there. That, is that all? So that's only six clubs? It's, it's only six clubs. Um, that's not right. It. I'm, I'm genuinely surprised by that, to be perfectly honest. Yes, I, I, I mean, I, I looked at the documentation this morning. I, I think Palace, Palace got formal agreement in November. Yes, yes. Um, I think the other clubs, all credit to them um, that they are doing, even credit to West Ham. You know, yeah, it's not yeah. something we've been given a lot of. Uh, there, there's little excuse. Uh, there's no it, excuse. Yeah, okay. Yeah, absolutely. There, there is zero. I very, I very rarely contradict you, Gary, yeah. but there is no excuse on this one. Um, there's no excuse... We have to be a little bit careful um, that some clubs could easily do it, and then what you might find is that they outsource things such as catering and security. Yeah, and are those companies committing to signing that up, signing up for it as well? Well, I'm I'm, I'm glad you say that because it stops me because I'm proud to say that Palace have insisted that all subcontractors pay the London living wage. So That's that means excellent. that catering staff and anybody else that employ staff at Sellers Park on a match day or non-match day have to sign up to that which is only right i think as yep. well and it's and it's i'm g- genuinely shocked that even for pr purposes there are clubs that aren't doing this because it's, it's going to cost them nothing yes lo- oh okay um daniel ellicott ellicott let's, let's go back there let's just pay due respect to daniel's fine name daniel ellicott now richard scudamore we mentioned this before got a five million pound bonus when he was laid off as ceo of the the premier league um so daniel's question is do you believe that that bonus was justified, and would it impact at all on the finances of teams in the Premier League who are on tighter budgets? Um, was it justified? Yes, because the Premier League feared uh, Richard Scudamore going to one of the broadcasters and with his insider knowledge uh, effectively being able to negotiate a lower deal on behalf of the broadcasters. So that that five million pounds, which is spread over three years, um, you know, I think we, we're effectively looking at you know, your know, hundred grand per club per year. The club chairman voted in favour of that five million pound. Uh, effectively, it's a glorified form of gardening leave in oh, that okay. he would not go to work with for somebody who would be involved in negotiations with the Premier League. So it's a form of an insurance policy. On behalf of the clubs, they feel that uh, by having him um, not on the o- opposite side of the negotiating table when they're trying to agree their next broadcasting deal, um, they will be in a stronger position and they'll be able to get a better price off the TV companies. OK, interesting. Uh, Keith Jeffrey. Now, we we skirted around this subject a, um, a while ago in one of the pods. When I mentioned that looking at Everton show, I couldn't tell you who was on the front of it, but Angry Birds always, I could tell you was which sleeve it's on. Now, Keith's question, hello, Keith. Uh, this is a good one, I think. Has, has the Carabao sponsorship of, of the League Cup been a waste of money? Keith says he's never seen it in any supermarket. Uh, thinking about it, I don't think I have either. I believe it's South Korea's second most popular energy drink. Is it possible, Keith asked as well, to determine the cost-effectiveness of the sponsorship? Of, is, or is this one of those... Trophy, trophy things. In you know, back in South Korea, it, it reflects very well on them that they sponsor the League Cup in English football. Or is it actually working in terms of promoting their brand? Um, 
I think again what you what you've implied that back home this is done really well. Um, if you take a look at some of the stunts that have taken place in respect of the Carabao Cup, uh, in that they, the draw was taking place at Chinese time yeah. and uh, Korean time and so on, um, in order to maximise audiences there, you can only assume that Carabao must be delighted. The UK is a relatively small market, um, and, and they will already be aware that there are other brands of energy drinks which have, have the market sewn up and have huge marketing budgets – so realistically, they weren't looking to penetrate the UK market. Um, the prize money for the Carabao, for winning the Carabao Cup is only around about 200 grand. If you compare that to the FA Cup, which is around right. about 4 million, and then you've got you know, the Champions League where you, you could get 100 million, it, it is small beer. Um, and, and that's why I think some people uh, fear for its future. Okay. Well, that's a question for another pod, unfortunately. Um, last question comes from Gareth Richards. Hello, Gareth. Um, I'm not sure... After me saying to you, can you keep the answer short for the rest of this pod? I'm not sure there is a short answer to this one, but it's it's a, it's an interesting question and a slightly worrying one. Gareth wants to know whether you think the proposed changes to the Champions League format, plus the f- proposed third competition, will this damage the football pyramid in our country beyond repair? In other words, is it, is it going to guarantee a small, elite number of clubs that the rest of us will find impossible to financially compete with? I, I think... Uh... At the very top level, uh, it's difficult to see how a club such as Leicester, and I think Leicester have been a fantastic example. A, they won the Premier League. B, they're looking like getting a a Champions Mm. League spot this year. It's difficult to see how anybody can break through the the financial dominance that the big six clubs have. Um, What we have seen is that the, the value of being in Europe is worth a minimum of 20 million up to 100 million in prize money that gives you a huge start uh, every season you've also got sponsors willing to pay more to the clubs we've spoken about a sponsorship coming from gambling companies before but note who those gambling companies aren't sponsoring they're not sponsoring Liverpool Manchester mm. United Arsenal mm. and Chelsea because those clubs are operating in a different pool uh, in terms of, of the money uh yeah, it, it is. It is a cause for concern because if the if the the larger clubs decide that they are going to continue to split up the the money from the Premier League between themselves in a more advantageous manner, and we've just seen that with international rights, are they then going to turn around and find other ways of reducing what what uh, they are prepared to drip down into the EFL, and that does have impacts upon. If you are a Wigan fan, have you seen the last of the Premier League forever? The same with Barnsley. We've actually had 49 clubs play in the Premier League since it came into existence in 92-93. And I think that has always given clubs some hope. You've only got to look at you know, Huddersfield had mm. their two seasons in the sun. Um, it would be great if things were more egalitarian and democratic, but that's not the way things are moving. Damn. I'm determined that one day we'll end one of these pods on an upbeat note. Every pod ends with me sighing, like Eeyore, being told <laughs> bad news is terrible. Um, question of Football is a Dapdip production. Uh, if you have any questions for us, it's questions at priceoffootball.com. I feel I should be saying .com then. Yeah, it is. So, yeah, it's, yeah, it is. Yeah, yes. I've been saying it so much. I, I, 
It's just all words now, isn't it? Um, and of course, you can leave reviews for us, uh, as long as they're good reviews, where you, where you leave your reviews. Because algorithms, I haven't said that for a couple of weeks. <laughs> uh, we'll see you on Thursday. Cheerio, folks. At William & Mary, we believe today's business education needs to be more than just innovative. It requires a legacy of success, a focus on teaching, an emphasis on technology, and a practical hands-on approach. At William & Mary's Raymond A. Mason School of Business, our online, part-time, and traditional full-time graduate programs apply these strengths to provide the experience necessary to help you succeed. Visit us at chatadmissions.com to learn more.